Hello and good afternoon. Welcome to your Wednesday episode of World of Final Fantasy XIV with your hosting adventurer, Keegan. Again, we're recording a little early on Tuesday because of my work schedule for Wednesday. So we are doing this recording on Tuesday afternoon, uh, but it will go up for posting uh, first thing Wednesday morning um, out as always. So, how's everybody's weekend been going? We uh, did a little bit of map running on Friday night or Saturday night. Got to experience the new treasure dungeon that had come out. Pretty cool. We uh, made it three floors down. It was uh, pretty enjoyable. Our group is farming more maps as we speak. And as we get more maps, when the weekend comes around again, we'll see who's around and um, we'll wind up doing them again. So for this Wednesday's episode, we left off last week with Ifrit. We talked a little bit about his history, where he came from, his beast tribes. This week, we are going to be tackling the second fight that you come up to for your primals. And this one probably is the hardest of the beginning fights for a beginner. Um, and that's Titan. He is a massive pain in the butt. A lot of people struggle with him when you first got into it. It's a lot that goes on. A lot of mechanics on a very small arena over the course of time. Um, that that fight goes on. We're going to break it down step by step. I have my video up that I'm going to be referencing as far as the fight goes. And we'll go through the video step by step. What each mechanic is. What to expect. And how to handle it all. But we're also going to touch on the Kobolds. Which are the Beast Tribe. That worship Titan where the Cobalts originated from, what they deal in, their beast tribes that we work with, that we formed a relationship with throughout our journey, and Titan and the history of Titan and who he is, where he came from, why he's called the Lord of Crags, and basically that. Some quick housekeeping. My episode from Saturday is up and live. I still have not had a response to the $5 Mog Station tabletop item question that was posted up on Saturday's episode. If you had not got a chance to listen to the beginning first part of Limsa Lominsa, at the end there was a trivia question in there for the capital city of Limsa. The first person to email me at worldofff14 at gmail.com with the correct answer gets that tabletop item that I'm giving out as a prize. I have the Facebook page up and live at worldofff14. You can search it at facebook.com. I have 
put it up in the two Final Fantasy fourteen Facebook groups that I am a part of, which is the Ultra Server group and the Final Fantasy fourteen group in general. I recently had just joined a Final Fantasy fourteen Glamour Facebook page, and I'm working with the people to that page to see if I can post up in their page. We also have the Patreon, patreon.com slash world of FF14 is where you would find it. We have the two tiers, the $2 tier, which is for just all the normal content that I will be posting up there in regards to the episodes, what the episode is about, and the link to the episode. And we also have a $5 tier, which is going to have bonus content blogs that will be my short story that I wrote based on Final Fantasy XIV. It was 13 chapters long. I'm going to do a chapter a month at the end of each month starting in February, which will take us through the end of the year. And the people who subscribe at the $5 tier will have access to that blog, to that story. It um, came out as a really good story, just based on me and a couple of my friends that are in my static that I just wrote a short story on. And it has to do with the Realm Reborn story. I'm in the process of writing the second short story to it, which is going to take our adventurers into the Heavensward aspect of the story but just my version of it. I'm using all of the history of the realm and did my own version of a story. And it is really interesting because it just gives another creative mind outlook on what these adventurers could go through. And at that $5 tier on Patreon, you'll be able to you know join along in that journey. All proceeds from the Patreon go towards gifts, giveaways, contests, prizes, and the building up of the podcast. Again, we're going to do a bunch of different things throughout the course of this podcast. It's not just going to be me ranting off about history. We will run different contests, different um, games. We'll talk patch notes when patches come out, live updates. We'll go into deep digesting of live letters. When live letters come out, we know we have an expansion, not an expansion. We have a live letter coming out in a couple weeks with our next patch we'll go into the story where we're on our way to the new content that's going to be coming out some stuff has been announced for fans of final fantasy 7 we know we're going to be getting a trial fight against ruby weapon we also know that we're going to be getting the second set of our eden fights which so far has been teased that ramu might be making an appearance in E5 through E8. So a lot of cool stuff going to be coming that we'll find out in the February 6th live letter, which I will then digest on the February 8th Saturday podcast instead of a history podcast. So a lot of cool stuff coming. We're going to continue to grow the podcast. We're going to continue to grow the community. I will also be working tonight, probably after my raid's over, the Final Fantasy World of Final Fantasy fourteen Discord channel. I'm going to be starting one of those up for the community to join, for to chat, to talk to other people who are in the podcast and communicate and you know form bonds that you know may be able to be shared in the game. 
with cross-world link shells now and cross-world communities, it allows people to play with other people from other servers. So there's, you know, that element that if you want to create a static because you want to raid yourself and you just don't have anybody to raid with, this Discord channel is going to be somewhere where you can go to find people to help you with raiding and, you know, getting better at the game, especially if you're a new person that's just found out about the game, who's just coming into the game. This will give you a place to go to talk to people who are experienced, who are familiar with the game, who can help you, you know, get better. So that's something I'm going to also be getting into works. I should have more information on that on Saturday's podcast in regards to the Discord channel. But as far as all the housekeeping goes, um, that's all I have. So feel free, if you have any questions, reach out to me at worldofff14 at gmail.com. You can reach me at my the Facebook page, facebook.com, worldofff14, or on Patreon at patreon.com slash worldofff14. We did just get picked up on Overcast, um, another podcasting platform, on top of the ones that were listed before. I will put the list of all the podcast platforms in the notes, for the show notes, as well as the links. They will be posted up again in the show notes for where we can be contacted. But without further ado, we will take our short break. And when I get back, we will go into Titan, his fight, his history, and the Cobalt Beast Tribe. So give us a couple minutes, and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back from that break. Keegan here, your adventurer extraordinaire, getting ready to take you on an adventure through the life of the Kobolds and their primal titan, the Lord of Crags. So as we go through our journey through Eorzea, we come across many different people, many different beasts, many different primals. We've already talked about the first set, the Amaljah, that we came across in Thanalon and the Brotherhood of Ash and their primal Ifrit, Lord of the Inferno. Another beast tribe that we come across are the Kobolds. These subterranean beastmen dwell in northern Valdebran where they perforate the rocky bowels of Ogamaro with an ever-expanding warren of with a an ever-expanding warren of shafts and tunnels. After long years of conflict, the Cobalt forged a peace treaty with the nearby city-state of Limsa, but recent disagreements over the acquisition of mineral resources have sparked a resurgence of hostilities. So, the Cobalt are peaceful creatures. They don't really like to be bothered. They kind of stick to themselves. But... The people of Limsa, since we know they're a pirate trading city from our Saturday episode, they were trying to acquire minerals and resources 
from their area. And that made basically the Cobalts mad. Which eventually sparked a war. Which eventually led them to using their resources to summon their almighty primal. Of course with some poking and prodding from the Asians, Who assisted in this. Which we'll you know, take a look at the Asians later on down the road. When we get closer to Garuda and the ultimate weapon for our discussions. When we come across the Cobalts, we find them and they're not much bigger than our race of Lollafels. <clears throat> Short and squat with their heads encased in metal helms, Cobalts are commonly described as armored moles. Despite this comparison, onlookers are often taken aback when the predominantly bipedal creatures skitter along the grounds on all fours their long, sharp claws affording them secure purchase on all manner of surfaces. As a race that spends the majority of its time underground, cobalt eyesight is particularly poor. A disadvantage that is offset by incredibly keen hearing, as well as the presence of tactical hair that allows the beastmen to sense subtle changes in the air pressure. Excuse me. So, we have seen that when you first look at a kobold, you simply say, what are these guys? By themselves, they don't particularly look like much, but for a whole, they're in a group can be dangerous. And they have a lot of benefits while working together. Acting as a math peace for Great Father Titan, the Patriarchs of the First Order Dig is the guiding voice of the entire race of kobolds. The First Order itself contains not a single pickman, its ranks filled instead by a multitude of priests responsible for governing the various facets of the ruling theocracy. When it comes to us and the beast tribe that we start working with, to begin to get on the good side of the Cobalt after everything happened with Titan. We're working with the 789th Order Dig, which is the absolute lowest level of all the Cobalt Digs. To understand why you have this rankage, <coughs> we would have to look at the society and the culture of the Cobalt. And why they put in place these digs that they're called. Cobalt society is structured around the existence of ranked groups known as digs. The first order stands at the pinnacle of a rigid hierarchy with each successive rung on the social ladder wielding authority over the lesser ranked digs beneath it. All digs have an associated role. The highest one consisting of the bureaucrats and the priest. Those are responsible for the governance of state and faith. Everybody in the middle rungs are your metallurgists and your alchemists. As well as your mining operation surveyors. And your bottom rungs of this hierarchy are all occupied by your manual laborers. Such as your pickmen, your industrial workers, 
but the overall trend appearing to show that the lower a dig's rank, the less cerebral its task is likely to be. When you look at the Cobalt Young, when they're born, they're raised as a group by a foster dig. When they come of age, they are then assigned to live and work with whichever dig in the hierarchy best suits their capabilities. Depending on the quality of the work, the Cobalts might also then move them up or down the social ladder, potentially belonging to multiple digs over the course of their lifetimes. So, if you're on a bottom rung, per se, but you want to start moving yourself up, you have to prove yourself in the different faucets of their lifestyle to eventually get yourself moved up the hierarchy. So, you don't have to stay on the bottom rung forever. You can eventually move up, but it takes time. And you have to put the work in and you have to prove that you belong in the higher digs. And that's how their hierarchy works. But there's always that one hierarchy that's going to be above you that has final say over the lower hierarchies. And it can always be outranked by a higher one up until you get to the top one, which is the first. <clears throat> when we talk about the lower rungs being the ones who do the manual labor and all... The primary industry that the kobolds focus on are your steel smithing because of all the ore and the mineral resources that they get. They can make their tournamental ores as the gift of Great Father Titan and the race has made significant advances in metallurgy in an attempt to divine the will of their earthen deity. The creation of cobalt steels, one such discovery made by the cobalts in the name of its spiritual pursuit. And then another one that they focus on is alchemy because the resources can be used in a lot of different potions and the priests have a lot of uses for um, the alchemy. When we look at the nomenclature of the Cobalts, they don't have normal names like everybody else. All their names either have weird phrases, either a zoo, Z-U, or a ga, G-A. The names of the Cobalts consist of extremely short, single-syllable sounds with the clan name preceding the first name. Zuga, for example, would refer to ga, of the Zoo clan. The simplicity of this system results in many individuals sharing the same moniker, a matter compounded by the race's tendency to birth large litters of young. Whilst this would lead to confusion in most societies, the issue of identical names is rendered largely unimportant by the Mulman's fixation upon rank and occupation. So basically, for instance, what they're saying is, rather than simply starting a birth name, a kobold might be introduced as Third Order Patriarch Zuga, the additional titles distinctly identifying him as the highest ranking male priest of the Third Order Dig, uh, meaning Patriarch. And they do that basically with everybody that is born. They don't have individual names. They're all ranked, and you're basically a statistical number um, in their population. And you're just referenced as based on your order, what basically ranking you are. If you're a patriarch, you're the highest one of that order. 
and Zuga for being best of the It can get pretty hectic, and eventually, when you get to the 789th order dig, you start to see that that scale of naming is not relevant because they're the lowest of the low and they want to stand out and be themselves. <clears throat> when you look at the 789th order dig, since we work with them on the regular throughout the course of our story, the 789th order is home to the dregs of Cobalt Society, along with their uninspiring foreman, Pikmin Jigu. The underperforming members of this dig have been relegated to a site that is more refuse heap than mineshaft. It is a barren dig where extracting a trace of even the lowest grade of ore would be a struggle for a diligent miner. Assuming one can even be found amongst the, the gathering of labor shrieking misfits. So all of the orders above the rungs think that these people are nothing. Well, these cobalt are nothing. And throughout our story of helping them, we're proving that they're more than nothing and that they belong to be a member of the Cobalt Society, that they do have a purpose and that they serve a purpose and that they should be looked at upon as equals. <clears throat> Even as they pretend to... They keep up with their impossible-to-meet mining quotas. They spend their days in idle avoidance of hard work, scarcely eking out a day-to-day -day existence. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, these pariahs are not permitted in audience with the Lord of Crags, and thus their ranks are free of fanatics enthralled by the primal influence. So, basically, because of how weak they are, and that they're looked at as basically, practically nothings, they don't even get to ever meet with Titan or even take place in his presence or have his blessing. When we look at Pikmin Jigu, who is the leader, he's a young leader, cobalt youth of 19 summers. He would rather die than to do an honest day's work. And if he were being honest, he'd rather not die either. Never struggling against the current, Jigu allows the river of life to carry him ever further downstream, relying on others to fish him out whenever trouble threatens his languid, floating existence. It was this apathy that led him into the life of a Pikmin, the kobold mistakenly believing that picking up rocks would make for an easy profession. His backbreaking apprenticeship soon disabused him of that notion, and his failure to apply himself as a miner swiftly earned him a spot in the disgraced ranks of the 789th Order. It remains to be seen if he will ever muster the ambition to make a future for himself and his beloved Bibi, which is his wife, who, for people here who have went through the whole Peace Tribe story, eventually he does become something with the help of you know, the, us, the Guardian of Light, um, as we were going through the entire Beast Tribe story quest. Now, going back to the disagreements that they were having with the people of Limsa. Since they were a trading economy 
they continued to take resources and abuse their power and consider the Kobold as not friends, but made them think that they were friends and promised them things for their resources and never upheld their end of the bargain. So in the end, with the Athenians' help, they began to say, oh wow, these people are taking advantage of us. We need to set things straight. Which eventually had them summon their primal, Titan, Lord of Crags, which we dispatch of in our second trial fight. When we look at Titan, his just his sheer size, he towers over Ifrit. The indomitable will of the earth made manifest, beloved of the cobalt clans. Compassionate and gentle, Titan is a father to his tunnel-dwelling worshippers. But woe betide those fool enough to provoke this colossus, for when his anger is waked, the very earth trembles and heaves under the unstoppable fury of his mountainous bulk. Seeking to provide for an ever-growing population, the Cobalt's expansion south of Ogomoro clashes with the cities of Limsa to colonize Valbrand's inland regions. It is said that the Beastman prayers, which summoned the Lord of Crags, were made primarily to beseech their deity for supremacy in this territorial dispute. So basically, they summoned Titan because they did not want the people of Limsa to take their lands, which is not what was happening. They were trying to somehow muster up a way to share the lands, but of course the Assians always come in and have a way to manipulate, to bend everybody to their will, to, as we see in the story, try to cause this great calamity. And of course, here comes the Warrior of Light to save the day. What we're going to go over the next 15 minutes is the EX version of the fight. The normal version is pretty simple. We're not going to go into much detail on the normal versions because it's a four-man normal version. One tank, one healer, two DPS. A lot of the attacks that I'm going to go over in the EX version will be in the normal version, just on a higher degree. But the, the EX version is where the harder content is. The normal version, what you have to watch out for is the knockbacks. He has two, one attack that is a line attack that you need to be out of. Because if you get hit by it and you get knocked off the arena, you cannot be respawned. Other than that, there are no ad phase on the normal mode. All there is is his Krag Heart, which is a DPS check. Eventually, on a normal phase, you get to this phase where his heart comes out of his chest and you have to DPS the heart. It's basically just a DPS check. You have to just take down the heart while he is involved. So you're basically taking it to heart while dodging attacks. Other than that, it really is just a DPS spank while the tank holds aggro. In the normal mode, you will have, after the heart phase, one person will get marked to get turned into a rock. Everybody has to DPS the rock to break him out. If you don't break him out of the rock, 
The rock explodes, kills the person that's inside. I will be going over the names of these attacks throughout the EX guide. The names stay the same in a normal guide. So for people who focus target and watch the names of attacks, um, look out for the names. But we're going to start the video and we're going to go over the EX fight. First thing to know in the EX fight. He has a tank buster called Mountain Buster. It happens throughout the entire fight. The tank that gets attacked is whoever is the attacking aggro tank. That tank gets a debuff stack. Once you get three stacks of debuff, you have to tank swap. Because you cannot take a fourth stack. It'll be too much DPS for the healers to heal. Now, in today's world, you can unsync this fight and really just push through and destroy them. But for the people who want to enjoy the fight and do these fight the way they were meant to be done, you have to debuff after the three stacks. It will just become too hard for the healers on a normal level synced party of 50s. <clears throat> now, again, I am going over my video here. So it will be a slow process as we go through this guide. So we're going to go with phase one. So basically in phase one, he's going to cast landslide, which is the line attack. You have to move out of the line attack. It is a pushback and it will knock you off the arena. After the landslide, he has these plumes that come out underneath everybody. The best way to handle this is everybody stack up in a straight line so all the plumes are in one spot. Once they show up, you want to move out of them because it is massive AoE damage. You then have a mountain buster, which is going to be the tank buster. And then you'll have AOE stomps. So he stomps on the ground and causes AOE damage. After the AOE attacks, he jumps up. He will crash down, which is called Geo Crush. He highlights the entire outside of the arena. You want to make sure you're inside the red circle that forms on the outside. When he lands, it will knock out the arena that was marked. This is where you can be knocked off. After he lands, phase two starts. This is a three-pronged landslide. It fires in front of him in three directions. Straight in front of him, two diagonals. You have to make sure you're dodging those landslides. After that goes off, again, like I said, I'm watching my video, so I'm going to be going slow through this. Next, 
you have your granite gels. One, this is the one I was telling with the rocks, the people that get turned into rocks. It's going to be one healer, one DPS. You want to separate them. You want one to go southwest, which is the healer, and then one, the DPSer, underneath him. Because after you break the DPSer out, you want him to be able to go right back into his DPS. If you land these two gals too close to each other, they do have a debuff. So you want to make sure you spread them far enough that the chain that's connecting them breaks before they turn into the rock. Then you want to make sure you're taking out the one that's underneath his butt because he casts a stomp. The stomp will knock, will push you back. So after the stomp goes off, the upheaval, you want to go and take out the other rock. So upheaval is a pain, so you want to make sure you position that first rock underneath his butt at the far north of the arena, because then when he casts upheaval, it will push you back south, but not far enough to get knocked off. He then will cast another landslide. So you want to make sure that you dodge the landslide, but also break the healer out of his rock. I know, this fight has a lot of mechanics and a lot going on. So, to go over this for the beginning, it's landslide, three-pronged. You want to make sure you're in between the forward-facing one and one of the diagonals. You want to be in between the two giant marks. He then casts the two gals, which turn a DPS and a healer into rocks. You want to make sure they're separated. You position the DPS one underneath the butt, the healer one to the south southwest. While he's doing that, he casts a mountain buster and an upheaval. The mountain buster is the tank buster that attacks the active tank and puts the debuff on him. The upheaval is going to be his foot stomp, which pushes everybody back. You want to make sure everybody is stacked on the rock that the DPS was. So it pushes you south, but not too far where you're going to fall off the arena. After that pushback, he casts another immediate landslide. You want to make sure you're positioned so your, the landslide does not take you off the battlefield. But you also have to make sure you're breaking the healer out of his rock. After that, he's going to do an AoE Tumultuous. After the AoE, you want to heal through it. He's going to summon more plumes. Wherever you're standing, there's going to be a plume underneath you. You want to make sure you're out of that plume. And then he's going to cast another landslide. You're going to have, after that landslide and the second set of plumes, you're going to have half bombs drop. There's going to be these bomb boulders that are going to drop around the arena. They're going to be on half the arena. You, everybody has to make sure they're on the other side of the arena, away from the bombs that are going to explode. While you're dodging these bomb boulders that have dropped on the platform, there's going to be another landslide. Dodge the landslide. But also make sure you're far enough away from the bomb boulders that you don't get blown up by the bombs when they explode. After that landslide, you're going to have two more people get turned into rocks again. 
You have to make sure you separate the rocks with the DPS person being underneath the butt and the healer being to southwest corner for the upheaval that's going to be coming. Rinse and repeat. Make sure you break the two rocks. Make sure everybody's stacked underneath the buffer upheaval and make sure you dodge the landslide. That is basically all of phase two. It is a lot. There are video guides out there to watch. I don't do good watching videos. I need to be in the fight because I am a visual learner um, by doing it. But some people like to see it. Some people like to listen to it. After phase two, he goes into another Geo Crush where he jumps up, leaves the platform, crashes down, and destroys another part of the platform, which makes the platform even smaller. Hooray. I spent a lot of time on the ground in this fight, um, my party people. So don't be discouraged if you're going into this fight in a locked party where you just want to see if you guys can still clear it again being level synced because it's a hard fight. There's a lot going on in a tiny, tiny, tiny arena. Phase three is the heart phase. This is where his heart comes out. This is where you're going to focus on the heart. You're still going to have everything else coming in this phase. You're going to have your plumes, which are going to be first. Stack, so all the plumes are in one spot. Get off the plumes. You're going to have two rocks. You're going to have your upheaval. So you're going to have the two people get turned into rocks and your upheaval. Use knockback nullifiers for upheaval if you have them. So arms length, sure cast, whichever um, class you are that has a knockback nullifier, use it if you can't get positioned for upheaval quick enough. After upheaval, there's another landslide. This landslide is a five-direction landslide. Two diagonals in front of him, one to the left, one to the right. Find a safe spot. Do not get hit by the landslide. The landslide will automatically blow you off the platform. After the landslide, you'll have two AoE, three AoE tumultuouses. Another set of plumes, so while the tumultuous is going off, you all want to stack underneath him for AoE heals and to stack all eight plumes in the same spot. So when all the plumes are stacked, as soon as you see him show up on the floor, move. Next, you have bomb boulders too. This will drop bomb boulders around the arena in a circle and one in the center. You want to see where the first one is, stand by the last one, and when the first one goes off, move to where the first one exploded. Far enough away from the center one where the center one can't touch you. <clears throat> While these are going off, there will be another landslide that's going to get marked. You have to make sure that you dodge the landslide. Again, left and right, diagonal in front of him. So they're going to shoot off east and west of his body. And the two in front of him are going to be diagonal. So you can stand right in front of him and be safe. He'll do two more or three more Tomorrowless AoEs. And he'll do plumes again. So 
But you also got to make sure that while all this is going on and while you're dodging the bombs and breaking the gals, you're still taking out the heart. If you do not destroy the heart, by the time you are done with this entire phase, it is an instant kill. So after that, he cast Earth and Fury, and then we're going into number phase four. For this phase, he summons two adds, which are these granite gals. They have to be destroyed. You have two granite gallers. Each tank's got to pick up a gal. So you want to make sure that these are picked up and downed quickly. While these are spawned, there are bomb boulders, landslides, plumes, gals, everything that you've seen in the first three phases, you will see in this fourth phase, just on a smaller platform. But basically, if you can make it through and get these ads down quick. It's just a simple dodging and DPSing for the rest of this fight. There's nothing else really hard to this fight. When the ads die, they do put down a red puddle. Uh, basically, it's like a lava puddle. You do not want to stand in it. It does give you cause damage and give you a debuff. So you want to make sure that you're not standing in those puddles. So you want to make sure you kill them both to the south and um, away from Titan. So when they die, those puddles are out of the way from causing any damage to anybody. Once both of those guys go down, it's just a matter of handling the bombs that spawn, the landslides. Watching your DPS and your healer for who gets marked with the gals and the upheaval. So you've got to make sure you're positioning those rocks, uh, the DPS healer rocks, in the right spots to make sure that you don't get upheavaled right off the arena. And um, the plumes. As long as you're managing all of that, um, it is not that bad. Trust me, this fight is hard. It took me... Again, a lot of time to understand it. I struggled with it as a DPS. I did really well on it as a healer. Because um, as a DPS, you're worrying about your positionals to cast max damage. But you're not paying attention to the mechanics. At least as a healer, you could pay more attention to the mechanics as well as healing people. So it makes it a little bit easier. Um, but other than that, as long as you're watching the position of where the boulders drop, the order that they're dropping, when they're exploding, and just position yourself in the right spots, this fight does become an easy fight over the course of time. It may take a lot of practice. Discord will be your best friend. So if you can get into groups that use Discord, uh, communication is key. And um, you'll make it through. You can always look up Keegan. On the Ultra server, if you're on the Ultra server, my static group for people who might want to learn to fight on a level sync, we'll be glad to run with you to teach you the fight on a level sync fight.
But, like I said, nowadays most people just go in unsynced and just destroy him in like three shots. Um, but there are people out there that do enjoy doing older content and like to go back to older content to see if they still can do it. This is a challenging fight and this is a fight that some groups to this day could still possibly have trouble on on a level synced party. So, but that will do it for this week's episode. And again, feel free to reach out to Keegan, myself, world of FF14 at gmail.com. Remember, we still have that trivia question. That's out from Saturday's episode for people that don't uh, remember it. This location in Limsa, the Sanguinian Sirens originally built this tavern to serve members of the crew who had come into port. Ever since the food and drink started to garner praise, however, townsfolk and adventurers can be found dining within its halls. Most believe that this establishment earns its name from those crew members the Sanguine Sirens have lost at sea, but there are those who believe it alludes to the captain's violent tendency to definitely decommission her male victims. Which location in Limsa is this? Again, it's that $5 tabletop item that is being given out in the MOG station as the gift. First person to email me, worldofff14 at gmail.com, will get that prize. Again, the Facebook page is live at World of FF14 and Patreon with the $2 and $5 tiers at Patreon slash World of FF14. I will be getting a Discord channel live. So when that is ready, I will let everybody know and I will get that link out there for everybody. But again, thank you all for listening. On Saturday, we will be going over the areas of La Nocia and the different locations um, of eastern, western, outer, upper, and all, and the different regions and locations and landmarks that are of key importance in the La Nocia area surrounding Limsa. Until Saturday, keep adventuring, have fun, and this is Keegan out.